The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Good morning. Man, worship was intense today. I, I, I honestly can't imagine a better accumulation of songs for what we're going to be talking about today. I really can't. Absolutely awesome. Well, it's good to see you guys today. Thank you for being here. Um, if this is your first time with us, my name is Trinity and I'm the family pastor at the church. Pastor Matt is not here today, but he will be back. He'll be back next week. So you can come back after this one. It gets better. It's but uh, I, I don't know about any of you guys, but can I see a show of hands of anybody who's dealing with any stomach issues this morning? <laughs> Just one? Man, they had some good candy this year, right? Like every time there was a handful that went in, there was something that I wanted. So as soon as it went in, it went out. But I feel like I'm sweating chocolate this morning. It's disgusting. But uh, today, we're going to be going back through our mini-series called Righteous Life. And um, if you're a first-time guest with us today, what we like to do when we walk through the Bible is we like to go line by line, word by word. It keeps us accountable to the context of Scripture. And, and quite honestly, today, the verses that we're going to be going through, verses 8 through 21, just 14 verses, is really kind of hard to understand if you're not viewing it within the context of what's being spoken. So... I just want to give you a brief overview for just a moment of where we've come from since we started just the mini-series. It started in chapter 12. It's going to be important for us to kind of understand that before we move forward. And I think the most important aspect of it is to remember that Paul's theme throughout this entire book has been righteousness. We talked about the three different um, modes, if you will, of righteousness um, a couple of months ago, how... The Bible talks about self-righteousness, and that's the idea that we can work our way to God by our good works, and we find out that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. We learned about positional righteousness. In other words, we stand positionally righteous before God. Jesus became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So we stand with imputed righteousness. We are holy and acceptable before God. But once we got into chapter 12 through 16, we started talking through practical righteousness. Practical righteousness is that growth that each of us have in Christianity, that movement towards the image of Christ. And first thing that Paul talks about, Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I beg you, the brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. So the very first step before we're going to live this life that God has called us to do is to understand that we need to view ourselves in terms of being a living sacrifice. As Paul said in Galatians 2.20, that it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. So from there, Paul talks about in the rest of chapter 12, just, you know, People of the world are going to be to do people of the world type of things to you. There's going to be evil in the world. There's going to be persecution that happens in how we overcome that evil by doing good. Chapter 13, he gets into the government. We talked about how we're to have submission to government, that God places all of that in place, but that we have a great, great honor of having the chance to vote. And we're coming up on an election year and how we should use that right that we have. But then lastly, chapter 14, Paul has gotten into different issues of convictions. 
In the last two weeks, Matt's taught over this, the title has been When We Don't See Eye to Eye. So it's those differing issues that we may have in Christianity, whether it's, he mentioned the the drinking of alcohol or tattoos or eating pork or worshiping on the Sabbath, these different things that we bring to the table and how we're to relate to one another in accordance with that. So what's uh, Paul's main purpose for all that that he talked about? His great desire is unity among believers. And we talked about that so much. We sang about that today so much. And even Tammy, when she came up here and spoke, she also mentioned that we're one body to lift up one voice in glorification to God. Before we get started today through these 14 verses, I I feel like it's very, very important that we define a few terms. Because if we don't understand exactly what we're talking about, it's, it's going to be kind of hard to track with what I say in some of this. So I've put three definitions within your worship guide. These, uh, these definitions, that I, I said this last time I spoke, the, law, the first law of logic is the law of identity. In other words, we have to identify what we're talking about. We need to understand the definitions before we can have a rational discourse. So the first one I wanted to tell you was unity. Biblical unity, what is the definition biblically of unity? It's to share a common faith. In other words, you and I, were Christians. We hold to the same set of core beliefs that Christ is God, that he came to the earth, manifested in the flesh, died for your sins and my sins. By faith in him, we have reconciliation with God. He rose again, and he's coming back for us. These core tenets of our faith is what gives us unity in that aspect. So it's to share a common faith to love one another, and to seek peace. Now remember, this is the biblical definition of unity. In order for unity to happen, all three of those things that I just mentioned all have to be functioning at the same time. A common faith, in other words, if you're of the Islamic persuasion, unity is not happening because we have spiritual division. But there has to be a common faith, seeking peace, and loving one another. That's unity. Let's talk about division. Division is to not share a common faith. In other words, if it's someone of a different faith, biblically, we don't have unity there. And also I put and or to not love one another and seek peace. Notice I put and or. For division to occur, only one of these three things has to be going on. So we could share a common faith, but we could not be seeking love and peace. That would be division. Or if um, we're seeking love and peace, but we're of a different faith, we, ha- we don't have the same common faith, then there's going to be division. Very important to understand because we're really going to look at division. We're going to define it biblically throughout this message. So if you don't understand exactly what that definition means, it's going to be tough to follow. And finally, diversity is the last one. And um, this isn't so much a biblical definition as it's just the way that I'm going to be talking about it today. So diversity is just a difference of, a th- of thought, a difference of opinion. So before we get into these verses, again, I want to talk to you just how much unity is on the heart of Paul and also on the heart of our Lord. Ephesians 4.1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, notice that first step, the first step we had in Romans 12.1 being a living sacrifice, the first thing Paul says when he's going to talk about unity is, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord, in other words, I've given up all rights. I look at myself in a completely humbled state of giving myself to others. It's not about me saying, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. What does he ask us to do? I urge you, 
I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been received or which you have been called. And how do we do that, Paul? Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. And the reason for that, verse three, we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So in other words, to have unity means that we're gonna have to we're going to have to exert a certain amount of effort. Unity doesn't just magically happen. Unity doesn't just happen as soon as we become Christians, but there's an effort that's involved in order for us to seek that and for us to desire that and to understand that it's on the heart of God that he desires unity within the body of Christ. And we see such great examples of this in in the New Testament, specifically in Acts when you see Paul and Peter, they get in a little bit of a tiff because of um, eating with Gentiles. You see Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, they get in a little bit of a heated discussion over John Mark and whether or not he should go on the trip. But what you see is effort for reconciliation and reconciliation happen in all of those instances. So we have these great men of the faith, Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, John, Trinity Bounds, all these guys. (laughs) You ever play that exercise in school? You ever play that exercise in school, which one of these is not like the other? I'm nothing like those guys, but what I want to do in my life is make sure that I'm given absolute effort in order to maintain unity because it's on the heart of God. So chapter 15, verses 8 through 21 is what we're going to be in today, and I titled it United We Stand, even though I could have very easily titled this today, When We Don't See Eye to Eye, Part 3. But I wanted to go a little patriotic this morning and go with United We Stand, But I want to read just these first couple of verses, starting in verse 8. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Notice he's talking about the first step again. Jesus, he's becoming a servant. He's lowering himself. He's um, becoming less in glory, less in power. In order that, there's a twofold purpose here. One, he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. And two, that the Gentiles might glorify God. He's trying to bring these two different cultures, Jewish and Gentile, together as one. Now, if you're, if you're kind of new to the faith and you don't understand some of these terms, I want to tell you that, let, let me reread it and say, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning he became a servant to the Jews, to the Jewish people, in order to show God's truthfulness. And I want to say to us today that when we choose to do the same thing, when we choose to live our life as a living sacrifice, when we choose to become a servant to all and to humble ourselves in the same ways, do you know that we can also be a testimony to unbelievers as well? And that's the first point today. The church is to have unity as a testimony to unbelievers. One of my favorite sections in scripture is John chapter 17. This section of scripture is known as the upper room discourse. And in the upper room discourse, we get this beautiful prayer by Jesus. It's called the high priestly prayer. But he's praying to the Father. And you want, you want to know what the number one thing he prays, not just for his disciples, but for us as well, is unity. He says, Father, I don't just pray for these, meaning the disciples. I don't just pray for the disciples, but all who would believe in their message. That's you, that's me. That they be one as you and I are one. 
And why is the reason for that? Jesus goes on to say that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, unity within the church, despite all of our differences, unity in the church is something that shows the truthfulness of God. It shows the world that, tri- that Christ truly came. And when the upper room discourse even began in John 13, verses 35 and 36, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He tells us in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, to lay down his life for his brethren. The type of love God is calling us to is a sacrificial love, a servanthood love for one another. But what does he go on to say in verse 36 there? He says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. So not only does unity show the truthfulness that God has sent Christ, but also It shows that we're his disciples as well. So it's incredibly important to understand that. Over the last couple of weeks, actually, I think it was three weeks ago now, I actually had the week off. And um, it it wasn't really a week off so much. I I did housework the entire time, painting the house, trimming the hedges, power washing. I mean, I was busy. I, I was busy. But as I was painting the house, I was kind of praying and just talking to the Lord, and I felt like he dropped a statement on my heart that I wanted to share with you guys today. And it was this. In order to grow in relationship with someone, you have to begin to value the things that they value. So in order to, so think of somebody that you have a relationship with. In order to grow in that relationship, for that relationship to be stronger, you have to begin to value the things that they value. Now, as I was thinking through that, it's been rumbling through my mind For the last couple of weeks, I was thinking about it in terms of this section of our message today. And Lord, I just want to grow in a relationship with you. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I grow in a relationship with you? How do I value the things that you begin to value? I started thinking through what is the number one that I can think that I can think of that God values. And that's the people of this world, man. He sent his only begotten son to them. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. In order to value the things of God, man, we can have unity, and that's just the first piece of us showing a testimony to who God is to the world, but also rising up at that point and going to the people of the world and viewing ourselves the same way Christ did as a living sacrifice. Jesus, he became lower in every conceivable way, lower in power, lower in glory, lower in status, lower in riches, lower in beauty, you name it. He lowered himself. Philippians 2 talks about that. And how much more should we? And I would submit to you guys that we're not really lowering ourselves, that the the foot of the cross is level ground, we like to say. But Christ has called us to go out into the world to share his word. But not just for that. What was verse 9? So the first one was to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. By the way, if, again, if you're new to the faith, the patriarchs are just talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these guys. One of the promises given to Abraham, by the way, was through your seed, meaning Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he's saying Jesus came and confirmed those promises to you guys, the Jews, but he did something for the Gentiles as well. Verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the church is to have unity in order to glorify God. And if you don't know what the word Gentile means, it's the way Cindy likes me to rub her back at night. Gentile. That's my lame joke for today. I, I don't have any more, I promise. 
Actually, Cindy's uh, dad is going to be here, second service, so uh, any way to make him squirm will be awesome. He's never heard me teach before, so this will be fun. But God is calling a unified body of believers together from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every tongue, that in one voice we might lift up that voice and glorify our God in heaven. We all look differently. We all come from different places, but God is glorified when the church has unity. And that's what I love about the mission statement of our church. The mission statement of our church is glorifying God through lives changed by the message of Jesus. And that should be our heart in everything we do. How do we glorify God and get more people to come to him, to experience him, to receive reconciliation through him? And I, that's what I also love about, the, about heart song. Man, God has such, done such an amazing job bringing two different churches together under one roof. God has blessed us immensely through heart song. And you know why it works, us and them? Because their mission is to glorify God as well. That's what they desire. If, if you guys run into any of the people from Heartsong today, any day, man, give them a big hug. Tell them thank you. Tell them you love them. Tell them we have unity. Unity glorifies God, and it's a testimony to the world of God's truthfulness. I want to show you these next few lines, though, once it gets past verse 9 here, because it's so cool. The progression here is just cool, because Paul's about to go OT thug on them. If, if you don't know what that is, that's the original testament. The Old Testament, he's about to go OT on them. He says, therefore, as it's written, remember, Jews, Gentiles coming together, and it glorifies God when we're united. So he says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, meaning Jesus, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles have hope. So he's saying, because this unity glorifies God, therefore I'm going to the Gentiles. And when I do, the Gentiles are going to rejoice. And when that happens, all the peoples, Jews, Gentiles together, will glorify God. And what happens then? Then Jesus Christ is going to be the head of that body. He is going to rule over all. And I think verse 13 is maybe one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Like I wanna, I wanna put that like at the end of every statement I make. That's so good. Verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. In other words, he's speaking to them from their position, their positional standing before God, that they're righteous, they're holy, they're, they're filled with knowledge. He says, you're filled with all this. You've been given everything. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. But, <laughs> this is kind of how I talk to my kids. Like, sweetie, you, I love the young woman you're becoming. I am so incredibly proud of you. I love the way you love the Lord. I love how sweet you are. But girl, you need to clean this room. Have you seen this? It's great. I think her and my wife are in like this competition to see who can stack more Ozarka bottles next to their bed. Like Cindy, she can make an Ozarka mid over there. It's crazy. You can almost track the different stages of the Ozarka bottle changes. <sighs> I'm gonna have to tell her dad when he's here second service if he can help me out with that. I've tried. But positionally, they are filled. So what does he say? He goes on to say, but... 
But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's talking to his Jewish brethren. He's saying, listen, man, you're filled. You have all knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. But I need to remind you, these Gentiles that are coming in, man, God has accepted them. I know they look different than you. I know they may talk different than you. But God has accepted them and sanctified their worship. We have been made one, Paul is saying. You got to think about this. Um, In this time, you have Jew and you have Gentiles these two completely different cultures coming together, clashing and making one new body in Christ Jesus. And you think about all the things they bring to the table, like the Jews, everything about their life and their worship with God, it was all regulated. When they, how they worshiped, what day they worshiped, the kind of diet they were to have with the worship, how they trimmed their beard sometimes. I mean, everything about their life was regulated in order to fulfill the testament and the covenant they had with God. And then you have this other culture, the Gentiles come and they're like, Psh, the only thing we kind of feel bad about is when we eat meat sacrificed to Zeus because we used to worship him. That's it. And you have these two coming together and they're radically different. And Paul's saying, listen, you need to understand the essentials of your faith. Jesus is the reason we're all saved. He said, yeah, you may have difficulties here and you may have difficulties here, but we're to come together and we're to have unity despite that diversity. So I'm going to ask you guys some questions. Is church diversity, remember diversity is a difference of opinion or thought, is church diversity okay concerning non-essential faith issues? Is that okay? Yeah. It's okay to have a difference of opinion on non-essential faith issues, but we should have unity despite them. So within the body of Christ, we should have unity even though there's diversity. That's actually where we get the word university. We should be a university of Jesus in here. But unity and diversity in the body of Christ. So another couple of questions, and these aren't on your worship guide. Is it okay to worship only on the Sabbath because it's your personal conviction to do so? Yeah, I don't care what day you worship. Awesome. I'm glad you're worshiping. Is it okay to not eat pork if it's your personal conviction? Yeah, I don't care what you eat. That's more bacon for me. Definitely. Okay. Is it okay to believe that you're, because you only worship on the Sabbath and because you don't eat pork, that that's what makes you right before God? No. You see, that's where we get into division. Why? Because we're no longer sharing a common faith. Our common faith, the essentials of our faith say this, that Jesus came in the flesh that he died for our sins, that by faith alone in him, we are saved. These are matters of salvation, and it's absolutely important that we understand salvation and what it is. And we can have differences of opinion with those personal issues, but we should still have unity despite that diversity. The, The enemy in the early stages of Christianity tried to pit these two cultures together, Jews and Gentiles, and cause division based upon these non-essentials. Today, he's still doing that in the church. He's still causing division based upon these different um, conviction areas. And church, we don't, have to, we don't have to live like that. And I'm not saying that's happening here. I'm saying it's happening in the big C. We have so many different denominations. We have so many different ways that people look at things. I believe that we can be a, tr- a church 
built on the foundational principle that it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter what your economic status is, it doesn't matter what your personal convictions are, what your color is, it doesn't matter what you talk like, what your personal beauty is, it doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Lutheran, Nazarene, it doesn't matter, but we can be a church unified and together with one voice, lift up praise to our God in heaven who has unified us and bring glory to him. And let go of these divisive issues. Satan seeks to cause division within the church. But you know what Paul is about to say to the Christians in Romans chapter 16, just one chapter after this? He says, but soon the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. Amen to that. But that's only going to happen if we stand united, if we're together and we drop the barriers that have separated Christianity for so long and simply pursue Jesus. In Mark 3.25, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. We need to pursue the Lord. We need to drop all these. Is that, does that mean that there should never be division? I'll ask it another way. Is church diversity okay concerning essential faith issues? No. When it comes to the essentials of our faith and those core tenets, if we're going to have biblical unity, like I've said before, we have to make sure that we stand in the same place on those core issues. They cause division spiritually. But what I want to say is we are still called to love and peace. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. We're still going to pursue love and peace with everybody. But that doesn't mean that we have unity with people. In other words, Jesus, when in Matthew chapter 10, he says, you think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to divide son from father and daughter from mother. What's Jesus talking about? Because obviously when you read the Beatitudes, when you read the writings of the Gospels, you say, obviously this is a message of peace. What Jesus is saying is in terms of the essentials, in terms of who I am, and in, in terms of how you're to be radically dedicated to me, it's going to cause division with the rest of the world. We were never called to unify with everything that the world believes and drops our, drop our convictions. Listen, we can trust this book. We can trust the Bible and we can stand upon those essentials. We're still to seek love and peace, but we can stand upon them. A lot of people have a little bit of a difficult time um, believing all of the Bible, I would say. They, they think that, you know, it's, it's, surely it's changed some over time and all this. And, um, you know, the, the New Testament, with all the manuscript evidence, over 8,000 copies is around 99.5% perfect. That's incredible. The one that people have a tendency most of the time having a difficult time believing is the Old Testament. They think, man, written thousands of years ago. Let's just take the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah, the oldest copy we have is around 900 AD, about 1,100 years ago, not too shabby. It's right in line with our book until 1947. I mentioned this the last time I taught. A young Bedouin shepherd hurls a rock up into a cave, hears some pottery bust, and they find a treasure trove of biblical manuscripts. Every single book of the Old Testament, with the exception of Esther, was up there. The scroll that they found of Isaiah, perfectly, perfectly all 66 books there, they went to test it to see how it related to our modern-day Bible. 95% exact. 
God has done an amazing job in the preservation of this text, and you can stand on it, and you can trust it. That other 5%, by the way, it was obvious slips of the hand, which can change a Hebrew word, and also a misspelling, because, well, it's not really a misspelling, but the, the word changed the way it was spelled over the years. That was it. They said in no way, no how, did it change the meaning behind any of it. Man, God has done an amazing word, and we can stand on this. Let's, let's finish up. Verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. I want to stop there and just say this. I'm hoping this frees some of you up. It's okay to be proud of the things that God does through you. So oftentimes, that's one of the hardest things to receive. It's, the, it's probably the hardest thing for me to receive when somebody says, hey man, good job. I feel like I need to teach them and be like, well, you know, it's not me. It's, it's God working through me until somebody finally said to me, I know it's not you. I was thanking you for your obedience. So if I ever tell you good job on something, I'm thanking you for your obedience. But I'm just saying that to say it's okay to be proud of the things that God does through you because it's him that's doing the work. And Paul's, Paul's proud of what God's done through him. He says it's brought the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, which by the way is 1,400 miles that Paul traveled, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it's written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Verse 19, how do we do this? He says, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The church has unity through the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says this, for in one spirit... We were all baptized. Say all baptized. <laughs> I love it. Yes. The church has unity through the baptism and power of the spirit. So for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The common thing that brings us together is when we believe the core tenets of Christianity, it says that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ, and we are now one body. Don't let the doctrines of the Holy Spirit bring division either. Jesus Christ has baptized each one of you in his spirit. Well, Trin, how come I don't feel as though I'm empowered by the spirit? Why, why don't I feel that anointing? Why don't I feel filled? Why am I not experiencing the joy, the peace, the goodness, the gentleness, the kindness, all these things that come from the fruit of the spirit? The number one key to unlocking the spirit of God in your life is obedience. When God calls you to something, whether it's to put away some sin in your life, whether it's to step out and do something radical for his name, when we choose to not obey, it says that the Holy Spirit is grieved and he draws back. If you wanna experience the anointed power of God in your life and turn this world upside down for Jesus Christ, it can only happen through the working of the power of the, Holy of, Spirit, of the Holy Spirit within you. That's it. In obedience, you will experience this life that Christ gave us. And I just want to speak before we go because I know it's time. 
I just want to speak verse 13 over you one more time. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, you've called a unified body of believers together to lift up praise to you and to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And God, we lift up that praise to you today. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that this wall of separation that's divided us has crumbled. And Father, thank you that you are King and Lord over us and you have anointed us with your spirit, God. Father, I pray over each one of these guys that their heart would be filled with ministry for you, that as they meditate on growing in relationship with you, meaning it's value and the things you value, God, that they would begin to value those people in the world that you're not willing that any should perish. And Father, I pray that you use us, that you use this church and break us like bread to feed the hungry. Lord God, that you would pour us out like wine to give a drink to those who are thirsty. Father, may we win this county for Jesus Christ and bring glory to your name. Lord, we love you. We thank you and bless the rest of this day for these guys in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.